Hello from the Curtain Cubicle. I'm Kate and this is episode 3 of It Happened Here. Today's case is a much more recent one, but just as well known, if not more, than the previous two. In fact, the crime I'll describe here was so shocking to South Africans that it sparked protests in both the real world and social streets. Thousands of South Africans protested in the wake of this tragedy, including a demonstration or march outside our parliament buildings, calling on our government to do something, anything, to turn the tide on the seemingly endless instances of gender-based violence and femicides. Before we get any further into it, an obvious but necessary trigger warning. This episode covers gender-based violence, including sexual assault. So please, consider your own emotional and mental well-being and how they may be affected by these topics before listening. This is The Senseless Death of Uyanene Mkwetchana and the Despair of a Nation. I'll be going through the crime itself as well as the reaction it garnered, including how it spurred some to put a renewed focus on the viability or possibility of bringing back the death penalty. Spoiler alert, I am opposed to that proposal, but I'll explain my thinking later. Before we get there, I want to tell you a little bit about Uyanene, or Nene, herself. She was born in 2000, in East London, in the Eastern Cape of South Africa, which, incidentally, is my own hometown. She was a lot younger than me, though, so we didn't know each other, although I do know a few friends of her family. East London may be one of South Africa's largest cities, but it's actually quite provincial in many ways, and social circles often overlap. There are just a few schools, just a few shopping centres, meaning that you almost invariably know someone who knows someone in common. Her parents are Norma and Philip Mkwetchana, and she grew up in the suburb of Beacon Bay, attending Hudson Park Primary School, and then in high school, she went to boarding school called Kingswood College, which is situated in Grahamstown, about two and a half hours away. Look, I know and love true crime, and I know that this genre, we have a tendency to describe every victim in glowing terms. My personal take on this is that it's not actually the great cliche that it is sometimes made out to be. Sure, phrases like, her smile lit up a room, can be overused, but the sentiment isn't. That's because, in all but the most fringe and rare cases, a victim of a crime is loved by someone. They are friends and family. They are that funny kid in class, the kind face behind a desk somewhere. And when they're gone, the media turns to the people in their lives to contextualize them, to fill out their personality profiles and render them three-dimensional rather than just a faceless name and a news story. So yes, every victim is someone's best friend, their shining light. Nene was that and more. She was one of those passionate, driven people, the kind of kid that teachers would say is really going places. She chaired the student council in her final year of primary school and was even awarded the Hudsonian of the Year Award then. The memorial written by her Kingswood teachers called her a keen academic, a born leader, and a talented musician. She was gorgeous, but we all are to someone, right? 
I'm not nuts about the implications that someone's death is somehow more tragic because they were pretty. But she also objectively was. Beyond that, though, she was magnetic. Her smile wasn't just wide, it was mischievous. Like you were both in on the fun. Her eyes didn't just sparkle, they were actually warm. She looked like the kind of girl who would comfort a crying stranger. Someone who would stand up for the odd ones out or the ostracized kids. And, naturally, this appeals to me greatly, she knew what she stood for. She was outspoken in her nascent feminism. Her Instagram is still up, if you're interested. And there's this one great post that stood out to me when I looked at it again recently. It's a drawing by a designer whose handle is at oeuvre, I think I'm saying that right, that's at O-U-V-R-A on Insta. In it, there's this plain male figure, dwarfed by this shining goddess woman, and he asks her, can you miniaturize yourself so I can feel good about my manhood? Uyanene's caption on this was, it be like that. And Nene, I feel you. It be like that. She posted this in March 2019, meaning she was just 18 years old. She would have just started her first term in her first year at UCT. She was still a month away from turning 19. And here she was letting her politics and her voice resound with confidence that I certainly didn't access until much later in life. But at the time of posting that fiery truth with her smart, pithy caption, she had just five months left to live. Five months until a chance meeting would bring her into the sights of the cretin who would snuff out that light. After school, she moved to Cape Town and she started studying film and media at the University of Cape Town, which we sometimes abbreviate to UCT. And it was here that she would have her life ended by exactly, and I mean exactly, the kind of man we are talking about when we use hashtag men are trash. So let's go to August 2019. Nene is excited about some clothes she's ordered finding arriving at the post office. The first time she goes to collect them, she's told the parcel isn't there yet. And the clerk takes her details and promises to get in touch when they arrive, which he does. So on Saturday, 24 August, Nene is back in the post office, queuing and probably staring at her phone like we all do these days when faced with a queue. Once again, she gets to the front for her parcel and is told there is a fee to be paid. This is pretty standard on international goods coming into the country via post. She takes out her card to pay and is stopped again. You see, the electricity was out, so they were not taking card payments. For international listeners, this might already sound like an incredibly annoying set of customer service failings, but sadly, they are bog standard for South Africa. We have a lot of incredible professionals and advanced businesses here, but the post office is not one of them. It's awful. I got a postcard from my sister in the UK recently. Hi, Sandy. It took four months to arrive. A postcard! I got a Christmas card from my friends in Sweden this year, only it arrived in late May. So yeah, the post office is a pain in the ass. The second pain in the ass that is par for the course here is load shedding. 
this is a fancy schmancy way of saying that our big national electricity provider often can't meet the demand for electricity and we have these scheduled rolling blackouts. So for example, it might be off for two hours at noon in my suburb and in yours at 3pm or whatever. This pops up every few months and everyone hates it, but it's also been happening for so many years that locals just roll with it now, you know? Anyway, let's move on from Kate's guide to bullshit bureaucracy and public service failings. Nene goes off to the post office one Saturday, but she never comes back. It takes just a few hours for the panic to rise. She's 19, right? And glued to her phone. So when she's not replying, it's an immediate concern. Her friends start calling her, calling around to their friends. An alert goes out on social media, and soon the hashtag bring Nene home is trending in the country. And when I say trending, I mean everyone was sharing this across social platforms, including local celebrities and political parties. There were prayer gatherings organized, the Pink Ladies, which is that um, missing persons organization I spoke about last week, put together flyers for distribution. It's also fair to say that South Africans jump to conclusions, bad conclusions, pretty quickly when a woman goes missing here. That is a learned response and frankly, a reasonable response in a country with our femicide and rape numbers. A few days into this, we're hearing conflicting info. One news source, dated 27 August, says that she was last seen at her student residence, heading to a suburb called Mowbray to get her nails done. But soon, a consensus emerges that the last confirmed sighting of her is at the taxi rank outside the post office in Claremont, which is a leafy, upmarket suburb in UCD camp, near the UCD campus, not exactly known for abductions. All kinds of rumours and theories abound. I even saw a tweet alleging that Cape Town is this hub of human trafficking and the police are just doing nothing about it. So it's not unreasonable to say that South Africans are following this case in almost real time, although obviously there is a information gap between what social media knows and what the family and the police know. But we learn that the family has traveled to Cape Town and has contacted contracted the service of a private investigator, Noel Pratton. Pratton had actually been in the news already that month for his assistance in investigating the murder of Megan Kramer, which, don't worry, is on my long list of cases to tell you about. A few days later, the University of Cape Town appoints two further PIs to assist Pratt, which should give you an inkling about how much faith South Africans have in the local police. It is hard to overstate how the city and country rallied around the search for Nene. There were banners hung over the highways, vigils held at campuses across South Africa, school choirs literally sang for her, while most prayed or just hoped that this would be the exception to the rule, that Nene would come home. But this story doesn't have a happy ending. On the 26th of August, police found the burnt remains of a body dumped in Kailicha, which is a sprawling informal settlement in Cape Town. Using DNA, 
it is confirmed as the remains of Nene. And that's when the tweets changed from hashtag bring Nene home to hashtag enough is enough and the very bleak hashtag am I next. On the 27th, the police arrest their only suspect in the case, 42-year-old post office worker Luyanda Borta. We don't know terribly much about Luyanda. We do know that he confessed relatively quickly and that he went on to plead guilty to the charges brought against him, which I guess is the one good thing I could say about this utter fucking monster. And because his written admission of guilt is in the public record, we do have a pretty good idea of what went down in those last few moments of Nene's life. We are going to jump back in time again to that day she disappeared. There is Nene inside this unimposing, unimpressive, squat little post office building. A building which is literally next fucking door to the Claremont police station. It's two in the afternoon, broad daylight, and she is doing one of the most mundane things we can ever do, going to the post office. Except this time, there is no one inside the building but the clerk who had helped her earlier, Luyando Borta. Because on a Saturday, the post office actually closes early, Luyanda had arranged with his co-workers to be the person to close up that day, and he asked Nene to come back, after the load shedding, to pay for her parcel. Trigger warning, trigger warning, massive warning. This is the really hard part. It's not pretty. If you're still here, we continue. Luyanda says that Nene was looking in her bag for her wallet to pay for her parcel, and he quote, started making sexual advances towards her. She didn't respond to these, and Luanda admits she just looked at him, scared. He says he grabbed her by the waist, and he pulled her up against him. He begins sexually assaulting her, raping her with his fingers first, and then with his penis. In South African law, any form of forceful penetration is rape. She fought back, and at one point even manages to get to the door. But before she gets through it, he catches her and knocks her down, dragging her back into the depth of the office, to the post office safe. He locked her inside, and he admits, and this just about ended me, he could hear her screaming from the outside. Then he goes in there and chokes her, trying to strangle her to death. All the while, this brave woman is fighting back. But Luanda finds a two kilogram weight, the kind that they use to weigh packages, and beats her to death with it. He leaves her there and goes to get wasted nearby. He comes back to the post office and covers the body under a blanket, cushions and a jersey, and then leaves again in the evening. In the early hours of the next day, he came back to clean up and to move the body to his car while it was still dark, before driving her out to a field 
placing her in a shallow hole. He douses her with petrol and sets the body alight. His full statement, with a few extra details, is available online. If you want to do that to yourself, I have linked to this and all the other news articles that I have used as sources in the show notes. Leander Boerta was given three life sentences for the rape and murder of Uyenene, a sentence that was met with literal cheers from people both in the court and outside. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this sad tale, Nene's death was used by advocates of the death penalty to open up the debate on bringing it back in South Africa. In fact, there's at least one petition for this still up online with some 670,000 signatures. The South African constitution on which our post-apartheid democratic law is based recognizes the fundamental right to life for everyone. So bringing back the death penalty would be unconstitutional. Of course, there are some that say, fine, let's change the constitution. I don't know how to begin convincing people that life ought to be a fundamental right. So I'll just offer some of the basic reasons I think the death penalty is flawed in the first place. I don't want to give a whole first year debating lecture here, but firstly, the death penalty is not a deterrent. There are countless quantitative studies backing me on this and qualitative research from admitted criminals who say that they wouldn't, it wouldn't have deterred them because they didn't expect to get caught. And secondly, and this one's a huge one for me, to support the death penalty requires that I have profound trust in the legal system, that I believe only the bad guys get punished, and that the system never makes a mistake and isn't skewed against certain groups of people. And I just can't believe that. There are other reasons too, but again, I promised I'd fight the urge to give you a debating lecture. That's not how I want to end the story. I don't have a ray of light, a chink in the clouds for you today. This is a relentlessly awful case and not even close to being an exceptional one here. It is tempting to describe these big cases that meet with so much public outcry as breakpoint moments or watershed crimes, but that would imply that there has been some change following them, and that just isn't the case. Uyanene died almost two years ago, and the instances of gender-based violence and femicide continues. South Africa has one of the highest female death rates linked to violence. That's women who die as a result of violence rather than illness or accident. In 2016, we came fourth out of 183 countries in a list that you really don't want to be top of, behind only Honduras, Jamaica and Lesotho on that point of death rates, fem female death rates linked to violence. And that's according to the World Health Organization. Here's another one for you. A woman is murdered every three hours in South Africa. There is a moving essay by um, a writer called Rosa Leister. I think I'm saying her name right. It's in The New Yorker. Rosa is a South African who lives in Cape Town. 
and she actually attended the march to parliament that I mentioned before. In her article, she makes two points that I want to emphasize. She writes that Nene's mother Noma said that, quote, of all the places she warned her daughter about, the post office wasn't one of them. Rosa writes, every week there is a story in South Africa that should stop us in our tracks. A newspaper report detailing what feels like a freak detonation of psychotic, demented violence against women. A one-off explosion of hate that somehow just keeps on happening. Thanks for coming with me on this one, imaginary friends. I'm going to comfort eat something after that. Next week is the end of June, which I'm sure you know is Pride Month. And I'm going to be covering violence against the LGBTQIA plus community in South Africa. Just in case you thought I was going to do something upbeat for a change. Please consider subscribing to It Happened Here, wherever you're currently listening, and following us on Insta and Facebook. This episode was researched and presented by me, Kate Thompson-Davey. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production. (laughs) 